Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am Doug Stewart, and I have a returning guest with me. His name is Joshua Longbrook, and he is the host of the Our Foundations Podcast. His podcast is about better understanding the society we live in by looking at the systems within it using an analysis that combines history, philosophy, theology, and probably some other things. Joshua, thanks for joining me again. Thank you very much for having me on again. So it's been pre-pandemic that you and I had a conversation back in episode 158 on my podcast here. How's life been for you since uh, the beginning of a pandemic? I mean, life is crazy. Is it as crazy for you as it has been for a lot of people? Yes, but probably in different ways. I would say that we've actually kind of been thriving the past two years. It's been something that whenever COVID first hit, there wasn't a lot of information and we hunkered down and we're treating things very carefully and safely. But after, let's say, a month or two or maybe slightly more than that, when the data and statistics were starting to come out and we realized that this had gone from a 5% fatality rate to a maybe 1% to maybe a 0.5% to maybe a 0.1% to 0.001% and, uh, and yeah, lesser and lesser and lesser, we started just getting back to our normal lives and we figured that despite a risk that might truly be there, it wasn't a risk worth shutting down our lives. And mm. we felt that might be damaging to our children. We had three children at the time, all under five. And since we've had a fourth, we had a fourth about two or three months ago. So we've had a lot going on. We've got a homestead. So there was planting and harvesting. I started a local group, an agorist group about a little over a year ago. So a year ago as of December. And that's a group that does everything from mutual aid to meeting together and doing skill sharing and doing projects together and all kinds of stuff. But it really correlated well with the whole COVID issue where lots of people were wanting and needing community. People wanted to meet together. People mm -hmm. that are like-minded with probably yourself and your listeners and myself we were seeing that things were getting a little crazy out there. And just this aspect of having other people in your area that see it the way you see it and that are like-minded, that really helps. And so that group really got up and going and that was a really good thing. And yeah, we just had so many different things that were going on that were really positive for us as a family. But at the same time, you know, we we're watching like everybody else, all the kind of crazy things that were going on mm. in the world. And yeah, so it's kind of a, a little bit of good as well as a little bit of bad with everything that was going on. Yeah, the experience of being in sort of a stay-at-home order at the beginning, I guess it would have been late March or early April for us in 2020. It was really interesting because we had just sort of remodeled a particular room in our house that we had furnished it and and we started doing like family devotions together every morning because, I mean, my kids weren't going to school or if they were, they were like on a reduced amount of work because no one knew how long that was going to be. So they weren't quite preparing to switch to virtual for the rest of the year. So we had a lot more time in the morning. We even got a dog because we're like, well, we were <laughs> planning to get a dog that year anyway. 
And then it hit us about three weeks in. We're like, we better do this now while we're all here, able to all five of us kind of watch the puppy and help him grow up and, and get accustomed. So we got a dog. But so for us as a family, it was actually very much a bonding experience for us. And so it strikes me as I was very blessed and fortunate to have the experience that I did. COVID didn't really hit hard in my family until this past year. And not my immediate family, just closer family members, not just like, oh, a cousin's, you know, in-law that, you know, had to be in a hospital or something like that. It was someone close to me. Did not pass away, but it was very serious. And so I've had the mixture of really having to pray hard for the health of people that I love and um, that are close to me, as well as feeling a little awkwardly thankful for the time I had with my family during those first few months, especially. So we've all experienced the pandemic in a very different way in the same in the same way that if you catch COVID, you're going to experience it in very different ways from a lot of people. I mean, there's commonalities, but that's the other element is that this has affected so many people, you know, so differently. You said that this Agorist community that you've founded or started was in somewhat of a response to COVID? Yeah, in a way, I guess. I had heard some interviews that were done on on a few other podcasts. I think I heard it on the probably the Tom Woods show and the Corbett Report, which I would highly recommend, by the way. And I think there was a third. And it was these founders of a group a website called Freedom Cells. And they had created this platform where you can network with other local people. You basically create an online group and you find other local folks. And ideally, you start meeting up with them and you get to know them. And so I thought this was pretty cool. So I started one in my area thinking, you know, we probably wouldn't have anybody. But just in case someone searched, then they'd find something. And sure enough, there were a few people that found it on there. And uh, we were talking online. It's kind of a chat room type forum format kind of a thing. Or at least it was at the time. It's changed a little bit. But with that, we decided to meet up at a restaurant. And we had, I think, eight people the first time. And yes, this was, again, in the middle of COVID. So probably a few months. I guess we had had mask mandates locally. And I'm in Tennessee, where uh, they've been a little more lax than most other places. But that was an issue. We wanted to go to a restaurant that was going to be open to that. So we found a local Mexican place that I knew they wouldn't be fussy about masks. And so yeah, uh, a lot of this was that we were seeing all these things going on and we wanted to meet like-minded people and get together. And so we did that. And again, probably about eight people met again another month later and there were probably 10 or so. And after probably two or three months, I guess probably three months total, we were creeping in on 20 people And probably the month after that, we had closer to 30. And it was getting a little awkward because we're in this public restaurant. And at the (laughs) beginning, I'm standing up and saying, everybody look at me, you know, we're here because... And then like you're in the middle of a restaurant. That's pretty weird to talk about, you know, (laughs) things like agorism and libertarianism and freedom and liberty. And, you know, it's all good stuff. Uh, It's really great. It's kind of weird. Yeah. So we we ended up renting a place and, uh, and we moved and we've been there ever since. So I have to ask... How rebellious were you at this restaurant? And I'm going to ask this in a very specific way. Did you share chips and salsa together? We did. All right. All right. <laughs> and I just wanted I don't to kind think... of 
That was a litmus test. That was that was a that was okay. a litmus test for you here, man. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't I don't think anybody wore a mask at the time, and no one caught any flack from the people, and it all went pretty well. But as we were getting more and more people gaining traction, yeah, we rented a place. It was you know one of the people in the group knew somebody that owned an event space, and so we got it for sixty bucks a night, and nice. that was really easy. We just told people to bring a few dollars cash a piece, and. We haven't had a problem. That's just how we've done it the whole time. But we've started since having someone give a presentation every month. And it'll be on... Like we had one guy talk about 3D printing. And I think he brought his 3D printer and talked about that. We've had one on cryptocurrency. We had one with another podcaster that's actually local to us, Nicole Sauce. She's part of the... I think it's Living Free in Tennessee is the name of her website and podcast. Hmm. And she came down. She's a few hours away. And talked about the importance of community and building community in a self-reliance framework. So self-reliance, not in the sense of an individual, but in the sense of self-reliance within a community. And that was really good. We've talked about everything from gardening to homeschooling and just all kinds of stuff. But it's been really good to to meet with like-minded people. We do a potluck. We can hang out together. We can get to know each other. We've formed this network and this community we do these presentations and skill sharing. We've had group projects where last spring I had people come over to my house a few times and we drilled mushroom logs and probably made a few hundred mushroom logs. It was pretty ridiculous. What but, is a mushroom log? I feel okay. I feel terrible. I mean, I live in farmland and I actually don't know what this is. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. So basically, it's a way to grow mushrooms pretty easily with low maintenance. And you take a log from typically from some kind of hardwood tree you drill holes in it with a kind of a special drill. And then you fill those holes with, or the way we did it at least, was this sawdust spawn. So it was sawdust that had the mycelium from the mushrooms like mixed mm-hmm. in it. And you fill the holes with that. You paint some wax over it to seal them off. And then you just stack them up in the shade. And after about a year or so, the mycelium colonizes the log. And then it bursts out and it fruits and you get mushrooms. And they come out for depending on the size of the log, anywhere from three to even 10 years. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So this sounds a lot like somewhat of an applied libertarianism. And maybe it goes beyond that. I mean, there, there's always that debate over like how, how extensive does a libertarian philosophy or mindset actually go? But I mean, how do you see that? I mean, is this in some ways an outworking of being a Christian? Is it in some ways an outworking of being a libertarian? Is it both? Where do you see that? Yes and yes. I would say that with libertarianism, it's applying that idea. So most libertarians probably come to the realization pretty quickly that the system that we live in is immoral and inefficient and ineffective, at least ineffective at serving our best interests. It's effective at other things that it does, but those are not good things for us usually. There's a lot of corruption and conspiracy behind the scenes. There's lots of bad things that go on. So we recognize that as libertarians. That's usually the path is that there's immorality and the use of force is wrong. The NAP is usually one of the basic principles of libertarianism. But when all you do is learn about that, learn how to justify that, learn the theory, learn the philosophy, learn the history, learn the conspiracy rabbit holes and all these different things... Like, that's great and all, but if you never apply that, then it doesn't really do you or your family or your community all that much good. And oftentimes, people get led down these rabbit holes that are not very productive. 
Oftentimes, it can make you a little more of an outcast, even within your own family. And to an extent, libertarianism and that philosophy will do that anyway, because you're dealing with a bunch of statists usually, and they don't like people that aren't statists, and there's a lot of conflict there. But if you get too sucked down the rabbit holes that don't really matter all that much, and all you're doing is harping on them, then you're not really being very productive. Whereas I ran across this concept of agorism a few years ago, and that got started by a guy, Samuel Edward Konkin III. And Konkin talked about this idea of, I think it was in the 70s or somewhere around there, but it was this idea of applying libertarian theory, where he talked about how we needed a counter-economy, that the systems we live in, they're immoral, and we just shouldn't participate in them. That you could use the political means, but he viewed that as immoral. And that if we're calling them out for being immoral, then why would we join that same immoral group to try right. to change why would, it? Why would we participate? Yeah. Right, right. So he created this concept it's of like trying to be a better pimp. Like, yes. maybe you should yes. just give it up, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. And yeah, so, uh, so from the libertarian side, that's kind of how I got to where I am is the libertarian theory mixed with the practical application of agorism. And that's kind of the secular side. But at the same time, you mentioned Christian influence. To me, and as I dug in deeper and deeper, I'm writing a book. I think I was writing it two years ago last time I was on your show, and I'm still writing it. So it's uh, taking quite a while. But part of it, it's the theology of obedience. And so this idea of the obedience to the state as well as obedience to God, because mm -hmm. you do have Romans 13, and that does, despite what you hear on both sides, that does have merit but that is not blind obedience and statism. So it's trying to find that line and mm. what that means. And so as Christians, I could go off of biblical principles to show that the state is immoral, the use of force and getting rid of free will, that's wrong, that's anti-biblical. But also you've got the example of the early church, the original church, let's say like the first generation after Christ. And there are a lot of quotes and writings that you can look at where a lot of those very early church fathers, they would go as far as to say that you can't be a magistrate and be a member of the church, or that you can't be a soldier and be a member of the church. And if you are and you're forced to be a soldier, then you do submit, but you may not wield a sword and strike another person. And so they were very strict, and I'm not necessarily calling for that strictness, but to use the original church as our example of how do you deal with the state, I think is very good. And they were in this situation similarly to us where Roman culture was very immoral and there were a lot of issues, a lot of, you know, the rise of sexualizing everything. Like that happened in Rome too. It's not just modern day America and a lot of other things that were going on. And then the original church also had issues with their institutional religion of the day that they basically spun off of. And I think many people would have issues with a lot of the giant mega churches and some of the institutional religion of our day as well. And then on the other side, you had the Roman Empire. And Christians, these original Christians, believed that the Roman Empire was immoral as well. It was killing Christians around that time pretty mercilessly, and that wasn't a very good thing. And so uh, it was very clear that they were evil and immoral. And they very clearly said that you should not join them. You should not get involved with politics. But when you come up with all that, you say, well, okay, the culture is bad. The institutional religion is fallen. And 
the political system is off. So what the heck do you do? And that's kind of where we are today, I feel like, when you go down the libertarian rabbit trail and as well as Christianity, if you take it this route. And so when you look at the original church, they didn't get into politics. They didn't try to fight. They didn't try to rebel. And I would say that's actually kind of the point of Romans 13 is that that is not the way. However, they did create their own parallel systems and structures, and that was their solution. So they had their own courts. They educated their own kids. They had their own welfare system. They did all of these things. They shared their resources together, all of these types of things where instead of trying to fight the system or instead of joining the system and changing it from the inside and reforming it, instead of that, they just created their own systems that truly were moral and biblical. And again, that's the idea of the counter-economy and agorism on the secular level. And I feel like from the libertarian side and the Christian side, it's the exact same solution and the exact same conclusion. And so I really like how those mesh together and that really solidifies and strengthens, to me, the importance of that conclusion. Well, it sounds like you, you've kind of, I wouldn't say stumbled upon, but you've come upon a situation that sort of embodies both the best of both ways of looking at the world. And so I'm, I'm really happy for you. And then my, the inflection in my voice sounds like, I'm happy for you. There's this big butt coming. That's not what I meant to do. But like, <laughs> I'm really happy for you. I think that is a struggle that a lot of people have is that they don't always have an option or they don't know how to look for an option where they can find sort of mutual support in ways that are sort of aligned with them and their context. Because there are things that, you know, situations that I've been in or even put myself in where I comply if you will, with what's going on. And there's nothing sort of like onerous about that situation. You know, I'm not describing anything like that, but it is tough for people sometimes, depending on where you live, especially if you live in bigger cities. I mean, you might think, oh, it should be easier to find more people. But if your city is being more tyrannical about lockdowns or something like that, then, you know, it it can be lonely. And you can find yourself in a place where being an individual doesn't have, I mean, sure, you can say, hey, I'm an individual but nobody wants to be a lonely libertarian, right? No. So <laughs> we are all in this together, in this fight. And I use that word in a very advisory way. Yeah, and I can jump in here and also say that there's another historical example of this, and that would be the Soviet Union. So under the communist regime, you had, I guess the two main people were Vaclav Havel and Vaclav Binda. And I think it was Havel that came up with this idea of the parallel polis and is the same idea that I just talked about. And they did it. He was Christian. He believed that the communist regime was authoritarian and tyrannical and immoral and all of these kinds of things. And so they felt like they were forced to do things outside of that system, kind of like the idea of a black market, but in more of a moral sense. And this underground system and economy some people attribute to leading to the downfall of the Soviet Union even and that having a big effect because they were stimulating a counterculture, a counter-economy. And while Havel and I think Benda, I'm not sure about him, but uh, some of these leaders were Christian, the movement itself wasn't strictly a Christian movement. It was this secular movement mostly that was just a response to the situation they were in. And so when you talk about cities, large cities that are very totalitarian, 
Or if you imagine like being in Australia and like, how the heck are you going to deal with that? Well, they were under the Soviet Union and that was pretty bad too. And this was their solution. Mm. So while it may not be easy, and I would say that there will be sacrifices in some way or another, I do believe that if you want to have a good life in a biblical sense where you are not compromising as much as you reasonably can avoid it, and you're giving a good life and a good education to your children, you're teaching them biblical principles, all of these kinds of things, you can't really do that in today's system, nor could you in the Soviet system, nor could you probably do that in Australia. And so sometimes you're just forced to have to step out of that system or step to the side of that system. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to just totally abandon everything. You don't have to leave the banking system and quit your job and be self-employed and pull your kids out of school and stop eating poisonous food and only growing your own food and you know all this stuff. Like That's not what you have to do. But I would highly recommend that people just take small steps. And that step is going to look different for everybody. But there are going to be some areas in your life that you can move a little closer to, or you can grow out a little more, or you can reach out to one person, two people, three people, and just start that ball rolling and just take little steps at a time. And that would be my encouragement that, you know, it looks different for everybody. And don't just get turned off by this grand concept of a parallel society and, you know, oh, there's no way I could do anything like that. Well, Mm. you know, maybe not and probably not, but you can take steps. And that is something that's very reasonable. It's very practical. And I would even say that, like, if you look at your other options of just completely complying and being a part of the system, like, imagine the impact that you have on your kids if your kids are going to public school and all their friends are people that are not like-minded with yourself and all of these kinds of things. They're eating trash food and, you know, everything else. And so that's kind of just the normal American kid's life. And so if you take that situation and you make a change in your own home and you say, well, in my house, I'm going to teach them about libertarian theory and theology and these good things, and we're going to eat healthy dinners and this kind of stuff. Well, that's good. And that would be beneficial for them. You could also go the political route and go local politics. And if you went to, say, the school board, maybe even become a school board member, you can probably change some aspects of their curriculum or get rid of a mask mandate or do something else that's good and beneficial. But uh, my argument is, well, what if you just took them out of that system? Whether that means charter, private, homeschooling, you know, it looks different for everyone. But what if you found a way, and I know it's difficult, what if you found a way to pull them out of that system? How big of an impact is that going to have on your children? And I would argue that has a much, much, much exponentially greater impact on your child than these tiny little things that you do here and there. Hmm. And so that's why I believe that this route of the parallel society is not only consistent with libertarian theory, it's not only consistent with Christian morality and biblical principles, but it's also really practical and effective. And so that's why I've had so much of a focus on that over the past, definitely the past year or two. Hi, this is Dr. Norman Horn. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, then you'll definitely like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Carrie, Doug, Aaron, and others as we analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. A common 
thread or theme I hear as you explain all of this and describe what you are very clearly passionate about. I mean, you're very excited about this situation that there are opportunities out there is that you are encouraging believers to find a way to be obedient to God in ways that I'm going to say this in a weird way, but like that suit their particular context. And I don't mean that like, oh, they can pick and choose when they can obey God. But like, how do we be faithful to following the Lord and avoid, you know, like how do you strategically obey God in a way that doesn't violate, first of all, moral principles, but like how do you listen to God in a way that actually helps you thrive in a society that is, you know, sort of hell-bent on keeping you from doing so? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd go with like the render unto Caesar idea where Jesus does say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar. So whose image is on that coin? Well, it's it's Caesar's. It's Caesar's coin. And you know, there's many, many different trails you can go on explaining this in commentary. But but the point that I really try to pull out of this is that they were using Caesar's money. Caesar had this money, Caesar had this empire, Caesar had this system. And if you're gonna be a part of Caesar's system, then you just need to be a part of Caesar's system. And that's part of being a part of Caesar's system is you pay your taxes and that's part of it. But right after that, Jesus does explain that you pay what you owe. And with this, there's, or sorry, actually, now I'm thinking about it. I think that's Romans 13, isn't it? After submit to the authorities, I think it's then pay what you owe. I should probably look that up. But um, basically it's applying that idea to the render unto Caesar, where it's you pay what you owe. And we are told that if you owe honor, you pay honor. And this is all in the context of obeying the governing authorities. So if you owe respect, you pay respect. If you owe taxes, you pay taxes. And that's Romans 13, now that you're saying more of them. Yes, yes, it is. So uh, yeah, it's after, it's right after that. It's not the first time people have put two scripture verses together that weren't immediately following. (laughs) You're in good company. Yes, yes, it does happen. But they pair so, so well together because I, I use Romans 13 to explain render unto Caesar because when he talks about how you owe these things and you pay what you owe in the context of the governing authorities, right after that, the very next line is don't owe anything. And so it seems like a contradiction. It's like, well, you just said to pay your taxes if you owe taxes. Now you're telling me not to owe taxes? Like, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. And the same as Jesus. You render unto Caesar. What is Caesar? This is Caesar's system. If you want to participate, then he's got rules for that and you follow him. You submit. But this is where I would tie in this idea of a parallel system, parallel society, agorism, parallel polis, you know, whichever, the original church, whatever example you want to use. It's this idea of instead of trying to fight the system, you step away from the system. So instead of not paying your taxes, what if you just didn't know taxes? That's probably a much better strategy and one that's biblically sound and one that I feel like is being encouraged of Christians that, you know, he says, you pay what you owe, but don't owe anything. So how do you do that? And agorism is that way, in my opinion, where instead of paying my taxes and being a good Christian and a good citizen and giving what I owe, instead of doing that, I could just fight it and I I don't want to do that. I could join the political system and I don't want to do that. But what if I just find ways that I can legally and morally not owe as much in taxes, then that's actually a really good solution. And so I feel like that really pairs well together. Yeah, well, and one small application of that would be to be 
decent at uh, filing your taxes in such a way that you actually get as much <laughs> as much back or you pay as little as possible. I mean, it might be actually not just a prudent thing to do, but from your way of looking at it, it is uh, probably a little biblical. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that Konkin talked about too with his idea of agorism was that the state is evil and immoral and it uses your money to fund its wars and all of these bad things. And so we need to starve the state out was his idea. So if you yeah. build out this parallel economy, it beast. becomes mainstream, you starve the beast. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's on that secular route as well as on the biblical route. This is a little backtracking in our conversation, but it's, I think it's still relevant. Have you been able to build faith bonds or have you been able to share your faith with people in the community that you've created? Yes, some. So it's been interesting because most of the people, everybody I've openly talked to about it, have been very open about talking about religion. And we have some very avowed atheists and some people that are anti-religion. And that's a really cool thing about finding like-minded people that believe in cooperation and voluntarism. And you're already at this place where you have this bond and this connection naturally, and you respect other people's opinions. And so that has brought up conversations about God and about theology and about the spiritual realm and all of these kinds of things, which, which I've found to be very good. Now, have I brought anybody to Christianity through this? So far as I know, no. But I have been able to discuss it, to share it. And I think that does have an impact. And it's, it's been really cool to see that these people are people that are legitimately interested and legitimately open. And that's not something that you find in most secular communities, especially ones that are not uh, mainstream. You know, about 10 years ago or so, our church hired a new pastor and one of the sort of the elder board in our church and the pastor were sort of developing this theme or I wouldn't say developing, but they were kind of latched onto this theme. And the key word there was the word, the Greek word oikos, which, you know, is not just a yogurt that we can buy at the grocery store. <laughs> it has a meaning. It essentially means household, but that's actually a little misleading because it actually is sort of like the five to seven people that are, uh, or I think it's like seven to 15 people that are like within your sphere of influence, right? And that number is not based on the Greek meaning. That's just the concept that the church sort of talked about. And it's been sort of a running theme in our church where, we're trying to influence the people around us that already exist that it's not like we're going to go evangelize the fifth neighbor down the street, hmm. although that's certainly welcome to do so. But it's more like, okay, who is actually in your sphere of influence? And if you actually take inventory of that, it's actually more people than you think. And it's actually people that probably don't aren't Christians. And so to focus on those relationships, and it, it sounds like you found an oikos in a certain certain sense to where you have some influence, you have the ability to share back and forth, to maybe debate and, and openly, you know, for others to openly hear. And I can imagine, you know, a couple of years from now, we have another conversation and you could actually have a story where you actually have seen somebody come to faith or, or something, you know, along those lines. So it's also biblical what you're creating and these people don't even know it. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's unfortunate about that, though, is that like all of these things, a parallel society, parallel system of having our own systems and dealing with things in-house and having this strong community with mutual aid and support and all these things. Like from what I can tell, that is the definition of the church in the kingdom of God. And so like I shouldn't 
it's unfortunate that I am having to go the secular route. And it's unfortunate that that's not what the church looks like today, the kingdom of God looks like today. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there and a lot of room for that to come up because most churches are good on some things. And some are very good on community and small groups. And some are very good on doing work projects and helping out people that need it. Some are very good at raising money and giving to the poor and these kinds of things. And so like, if we could unify the church a little more and build these things together where these things are actually connected and it's not churches that are specializing in this, that, or the other, but they're actually operating in this way like the original church did, then I think that would be very, very good. But the biggest hindrance there that I've run into in Christian realms is statism because statism is so dominant and prominent. And it's a, I define it as a secular religion. It's a religion that doesn't avowedly have a divine God, but it is a religion where they have this entity that is all powerful, that is above humanity, that's looking out for the good of all. That's what takes care of all their needs. It protects them. It gives them what they need. It provides them with all of this support. Like this is the state and they sing songs to it and they do these rituals to it and they give it reverence and honor and they have this priestly class that they have that hands down to them these laws and regulations and what they should and shouldn't do and how they should and shouldn't live their lives. And we have this uh, background, the patriarchs of our country, at least in the US, of the founding fathers. And you have their religious documents of the constitution and these things. And like all of it overlays onto religion. And that would explain why people are so, so set on statism. When you start talking about libertarian theory in Christian circles, at least in most Christian circles, especially where I am in the Bible Belt, that doesn't go very far. And this cognitive dissonance kicks in and we have some trouble there. And statism is something that is a huge hindrance if you are trying to create something outside of the system when you have this person that's religiously tied to the system, like those two things don't really go together. And so that's been the biggest obstacle, at least that I've come across. And I really haven't quite figured out how to get beyond that and Mm -hmm. some good strategies there. But yeah, hopefully next time we talk, (laughs) maybe I've made some progress there. Yeah, well, what you're saying there is very similar to a recent episode I just did with Peter Rollo, who has a website called Rival Nations. And it's basically trying, you're not just, taking somebody who, for the statist, and again, I don't really like using that word, but we all know what we mean when we say that. Somebody who has some level of devotion or acknowledgement that the state is legitimate, right? And so whether they worship the state or not, the state attempts to embody what they should be worshiping or be subservient to and so forth. So what Peter was saying, and I'll refer people to that podcast episode, was that you have a nation that it's a new nation, this new Jesus nation, and it is in direct contrast to Caesar's. And when you have people sort of enthralled by the state, it is a religious conversion from one religion to another to be a Christian. And then when you have Christians who claim both or who claim to be Christian, but then are also sort of dabbling in this other God, right? It's not healthy at the very least and it's damaging at its worst. So, you know, what you're saying here is similar to what we were, what I was talking with Peter about. Yeah, it's something that biblically 
the Bible tells us that the adversary is the one that is in charge of the kingdom of this world. And that appears multiple times in scripture that that rulership is attributed to the adversary. The adversary is the leader of the world and Jesus is the head of the church and that there are these different kingdoms. And uh, Jesus does make it very clear when he is questioned before his crucifixion of, you know, what is this kingdom that you have? You're a king, so where's your kingdom? And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, you know, I would have soldiers and they'd be right here right now and getting me out of here. But I don't because that's not what my kingdom is. And so this marriage of church and state is a direct contradiction to how Jesus defines his kingdom himself in his own words. And uh, you can go all the way back to, what is it, First Samuel chapter 8, I believe, where the people want a king and Samuel comes to God and God tells him, yeah, give him a king and tells him, basically curses them and says, you know, these are all the bad things that are going to happen. But if that's what you want, you know, I'll let you. But this is a rejection of myself. That's what God says. So having human rulers ruling over other humans instead of God fulfilling that role, that's a rejection of God. Yeah. So anytime you have, I guess, this way of thinking where you feel the state and politicians ruling over people is legitimate and somehow pairs with Christianity, I just don't see any way that you could make a biblical argument that that is true. I can make a very strong biblical argument that that is not the case. And, you know, someone might be able to give a practical argument that, oh, well, we can make, you know, the state a little better by infusing biblical principles into our laws. And, you know, yes, Mm -hmm. you can. You can make a practical argument. But can you make a biblical argument when God clearly says that having this centralized government with the king is a rejection of him? Like, I just don't know how to get around that. And I don't think they can, but that's a very hard pill to swallow for people. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It it totally is. And it just goes to show that we're fighting. It's not like we're just fighting liberty out in the streets where people are sort of not buying into our moral framework and our religion, if you want to say that. Our partners in the gospel and spreading the good news are also still sort of looking at the state to partner with. And it's like, you know, you said God doesn't want people to have a king, like that was a bad deal for the Israelites. And more specifically, you could say that the real problem was that they really, really wanted one. They were really craving one. They really demanded a king. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, kings are sometimes justified. Like this this sort of abstract idea that there are rulers, which is sort of what Romans 13 could be. But in the scripture, it's more like, no, you shouldn't want this <laughs> Yeah, with Samuel and Saul. So I do have one question to go back to your group here, and I don't want to make this entire conversation about that, but I think we've learned a lot by having that as sort of a, it's almost like a topic of conversation or like a prop in this conversation. Yeah. How have you handled conflict if you've had any? I can't imagine that you haven't. Otherwise, I don't believe that you actually have this group if you've never had conflict. <laughs> well, So we have not had any major conflict whatsoever. I think we have had differences of opinions on things. We've got some people that actually have talked about doing a protest or something like that that's more on the political side. We've got people that, again, 
don't want their kids to be involved in a group that is overtly Christian because they are anti-religion. And uh, obviously, that is very different than a Christian's beliefs. And, you know, there's some level of conflict there. But I guess really it's just been that we all believe in voluntarism. That's probably the core, I guess, ideology of the group. And that's the whole point of voluntarism, that everything is voluntary. And if you want to do something differently, then that's your choice. As long as you're not hurting any of the rest of us, like do it. And so with that attitude and that mentality, that ideology, it actually does make it harder to have conflict, which is really cool. And it's worked out really well. And I'm sure we'll have issues in the future, but we've been over a year and over a hundred people and no major conflict to speak of. Just differences of opinions that so far have been handled very openly and respectfully. Yeah. Well, that's really good. I I appreciate hearing all about that. So before we wrap up, I want to give our listeners to get a sense of, you know, what your podcast is up to lately and just sort of plug where, where to find that. Yeah. So my podcast is Our Foundations and you can find it on any of the podcast players overall. I try to help people to better understand the society we live in and the systems we live under and find ways of dealing with that, applying some of this theory practically. And so I've done that for many different approaches. I'm currently kind of just started the fourth season. And so each season has been on different topics and themes. But this fourth season, it's actually a good time if anyone is interested in checking it out because I started season four with going back to my very first episode, going back all the way to season one, it was kind of a chronological look of how our systems have evolved, where they came from, what are the origins of like government money and education, and how did those evolve? How did those get corrupted? And what are some alternatives? And so what I'm doing now in season four is going back and grouping probably about five or six episodes together looking at what those common topics are and themes are and trying to look at this from a macro perspective where we can tie things together a lot better. So I was like, I dig in very deeply and specifically on this one topic, like Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics or just different ideas like the origin of money. Whereas now I'm going to season four and I'm taking you know this whole concept of the origins of all of our systems and bring all of that into one episode from a macro perspective where we can see kind of the trends and how that's brought us to where we are today and all these kinds of things. So yeah, that's kind of where I am now. I'm at the beginning of season four, starting to do that, getting a more macro look and connecting a lot of the dots. The last season I did got a lot more into theology and it was looking at the early church as this example of someone that dealt with a culture they disagreed with and state they disagreed with and what did they do. So I did a whole season on that, which was really good. But yeah, that's something that I'm kind of newly toying with over the past year and a half or so is uh, that I started the show as a secular show, even though I had some biblical content in there mixed in, but it it was secular. Whereas now I am openly covering some things like theology and the spiritual realm and these types of things. So it gets a little interesting and I've actually really been enjoying it and seems like listeners are into it as well. Great. Well, I encourage them to check it out. And I appreciate this conversation, Joshua. It's been a lot of fun to to discuss these things with you. I'm really excited about what's going on in your world. And I hope that those ideas can spread. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.